is Monday, May 2nd, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedorfo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, U.S. House Speaker visits Ukraine and vows on ending support against Russia's invasion. We saluted him for his leadership, for his courage, and for the just the overwhelming courage of the Ukrainian people. The U.N. says more than 3,000 migrants died or disappeared on dangerous sea journeys to Europe last year. Fresh data show refugees and migrant deaths are increasing at an alarming rate. More than 3,000 people died or went missing in the Mediterranean or Atlantic last year. And Press Freedom Group puts website of two major French broadcasters back online in Mali. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. A top-level U.S. congressional delegation led by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is in Poland after a surprise weekend visit to Ukraine undertaken in extraordinary secrecy. In a three-hour meeting in Kiev late Saturday with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, Pelosi vowed that the U.S. will stand with him in her words, quote, until the fight is done, unquote. Pelosi is second in line to the presidency after the vice president. She's the most senior American lawmaker to visit Ukraine since the war began. The trip to Kiev was not disclosed until the delegation was safely out of Ukraine. Pelosi told reporters in Poland on Sunday she was proud to bring a message of solidarity to the besieged nation. Associated Press correspondent Naomi Shanein reports. A U.S. congressional delegation led by Pelosi praised the Ukrainian people for their courage during a news conference in Poland. This comes a day after they made a surprise visit to the Ukrainian capital to meet with President Vladimir Zelensky. We saluted him for his leadership, for his courage, and for the, the just the overwhelming courage of the Ukrainian people. The visit came two days after President Biden asked Congress for $33 billion in aid to assist Ukraine's fight against Russia, more than twice the size of his initial ask. Pelosi and her delegation vows long-term U.S. military, humanitarian, and economic support until it defeats Russia. I'm Naomi Shannon. Ukrainian forces are trying to hold off a Russian advance in the south and east of their country. AP correspondent Karen Chamas reports. So far, Russia's troops and the separatist forces appear to have made only minor gains in the Donbass, ever since Moscow said it would focus its military strength in eastern Ukraine. In the eastern town of Barvinkove, Russian grad rockets fly above the trenches of Ukrainian soldiers. Loaded with German anti-tank weapons, a Ukrainian soldier explains their effectiveness. If it's over 200 yards away, the tanks will be destroyed. And if it's over 800 yards away, you can make a noise. But it's good to destroy tanks. In the town, the head of the local museum, Mikola Zeleny, is dismayed at the damage around him. They said, we are not shelling civilians, we're carrying out precision missile strikes. Where is this accuracy? At this library? At the monument? Where is the precision? I'm Karen Chamas. Africa, Asia and Middle Eastern countries are trying not to take sides despite much of the Western world united against Russia's invasion of Ukraine. VOA's senior diplomatic correspondent Cindy Sane reports. Most Western countries are united in their condemnation of the Kremlin's invasion. But the view of the war is more complex in other parts of the world, experts say. Richard Gowan is the UN director of the International Crisis Group. He spoke to VOA via Skype. It is worth saying that 141 countries have signed on to resolutions at the UN condemning Russia's aggression. That's three quarters of the UN membership. But we know that in Africa and in the Middle East, a lot of countries are getting nervous about the impact of this war on their own economies. 
there are fears that Ukraine is going to lead to big food price rises, big energy price rises. And, you know, for many leaders away from Europe, it's actually those issues that are most concerning to them. Experts say the war could have a deadly impact on the already dire food shortages in parts of Africa and that Russia is spreading disinformation on the continent, claiming that Ukraine and NATO are the aggressors and that they threatened Russia, which is not true. Joseph Siegel is the director of research at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. He spoke to VOA via Skype. So to the extent that this is presented as a East versus West battle, you know, most Africans are going to want to stay on the sidelines. To the extent that it's recognized as a threat to the United Nations Charter and you know, upholding the international law and, and, the, and the rule of law, I think many African governments are going to reject what Russia is doing. Experts say most countries in the Middle East are not taking sides. Brian Katulis, vice president of policy at the Middle East Institute via Skype. I think a lot of the countries are deciding to go their own way, right? Oil-producing nations that are part of OPEC+, Plus, like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, they want to maintain good ties with Russia as well as the United States. So they're straddling. Amid the West's sanctions on Russia, some countries in Asia, including India and China, are buying more Russian energy at discounted prices. Russian President Vladimir Putin met with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi in December to strengthen ties. Again, Richard Gowan of the International Crisis Group. It purchases a lot of Russian military kit. It also has significant energy and economic ties. And you know, the Indian government has drawn closer to the U.S. in re recent years. But it's actually quite dissatisfied with the U.S. policy in Afghanistan. And in this situation, the Indians don't see a fundamental strategic reason to dump all their ties to Moscow. Experts say that if Russia continues to target civilians and commit war crimes, some countries that are now straddling the fence may be forced to take a stand. Cindy Sain, VOA News. Indonesian President Joko Widodo, who holds this year's G20 presidency, has invited Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky to the group summit in Bali later this year, despite Russian President Vladimir Putin's plan to attend. However, Zelensky's invitation may not be enough to secure the attendance of U.S. and other Western leaders keen on isolating Moscow. White House Bureau Chief Patsy Widaskuwara has this report. As G20 President 2022, Indonesia has chosen Recover Together, Recover Stronger as the theme of the group's November summit in Bali, a proposal that could unravel amid geopolitical rivalries triggered by the war in Ukraine. Done. We understand that the G20 is the catalyst for the recovery of the global economy. And if we're talking about the global economic recovery, there are two main things that are important today. Namely, first, the COVID-19 pandemic, and second, the war in Ukraine. The host, Indonesian President Joko Widodo, is under intense Western pressure to exclude Russia from the gathering of the group of 20 largest economies. Instead, Widodo has invited President Volodymyr Zelensky, even though Ukraine is not a G20 member. Russian President Vladimir Putin remains on the guest list and plans to come, which means U.S. President Joe Biden will likely skip.
White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Our understanding, and of course you could confirm this with the Indonesians, is we have reached out to them privately, is that uh, they did invite them before the invasion. Um, so any additional steps beyond that, I would certainly point to them, but we've conveyed our view that we don't think they should be a part of it publicly and privately as well. China's support of Moscow in the G20 has put Widodo in a tough position. Ultimately, his government may have to decide if Putin's attendance is worth risking the participation of several Western countries, including Canada, Australia and the United Kingdom. British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss. The G20 can't function as an effective economic body while Russia remains at the table. Gregory Poling, director of the Southeast Asia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies via Skype. I think the perfect solution for Indonesia would be they invite Zelensky and then the Russians say that Putin has decided not to come and then Jokowi doesn't have to make this decision. Earlier this month, the Biden administration signaled it wants the G20 to discuss the international economic repercussions of the Russian invasion and potentially Ukraine's reconstruction. That idea is likely to create further rifts at the forum where many middle power members want to focus on post-pandemic recovery rather than the West's goal of isolating Putin. Patsy Vidakuswara, VOA News, Washington. The UN Refugee Agency says more than 3,000 refugees, asylum seekers and migrants died or disappeared on dangerous sea journeys to Europe last year. That's more than double the number who died or disappeared in 2019. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Fresh data show refugees and migrant deaths are increasing at an alarming rate. More than 3,000 people died or went missing in the Mediterranean or Atlantic last year on attempts to reach Europe. In comparison... 1,439 people died or went missing on those routes in 2019 and about 1,800 in 2020. Since the beginning of this year, the UN Refugee Agency reports an additional 553 people also have died or gone missing while attempting to reach Europe. UNHCR spokeswoman Shabia Mantu says desperation is driving more people to make perilous sea journeys in search of protection and a better life. Most of the sea crossings took place in packed, unseaworthy inflatable boats, many of which capsized or were deflated, leading to the loss of life. The sea journey from the West Africa coastal states such as Senegal and Mauritania to the Canary Islands is long and perilous and can take up to 10 days. Many boats drifted off course or otherwise went missing without trace in these waters. Mantu says land routes also are highly dangerous. She says even more people have died on journeys through the Sahara Desert and remote border areas than on the sea. She says many people are subjected to horrific forms of abuse at the hands of smugglers or traffickers armed in criminal gangs and sometimes by law enforcement authorities. Among the litany of abuses reported by people traveling these routes are extrajudicial killings, unlawful and arbitrary detention, sexual and gender-based violence, forced labor, slavery, forced marriage, and other gross human rights violations. UNHCR warns that continued political instability and conflicts, deteriorating socioeconomic conditions, as well as the impact of climate change may increase displacement and dangerous onward movements. The UNHCR is calling for support to provide credible alternatives to the dangerous journeys. It is appealing for 163 million dollars to provide increased humanitarian assistance and solutions for people who need international protection. The appeal covers some 25 countries in four regions. All are connected by the same land and sea routes 
used by migrants, asylum seekers, and refugees. The UNHCR aims to provide essential services and protection to people on the move or stranded en route, intercepted at sea, or held in detention. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In other news, a woman has been rescued from the rubble of a building in central China more than 50 hours after it collapsed, leaving dozens trapped or missing. She was the sixth person pulled out alive from the building, which collapsed Friday afternoon in the inland city of Changsha, the capital of Hunan province. Separately, police arrested nine people, including the building owner, on suspicion of causing a major liability accident. Also arrested were three people responsible for design and construction, and five people suspected of making a false safety appraisal report for a guest house in the building. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonnews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedwafo in Washington. Ethiopian federal authorities are dismissing a claim by Tigrayan rebels that their forces have pulled out of the neighboring Afar region. A spokesman for the Tigray People's Liberation Front this week said rebels had withdrawn their fighters so the federal government would allow much-needed aid to reach the Tigray region. Henry Wilkins reports from Hayek, Ethiopia. Four days after the announcement by the TPLF that it had pulled its forces out of Afar, the federal government does not appear to be increasing the frequency of humanitarian convoys to Tigray, as some had hoped. Earlier today, the Ethiopian Ministry of Foreign Affairs gave a press briefing which stated TPLF forces have only withdrawn from a few areas of Aribti, Berehale and Abala town, while maintaining control of the surrounding areas of Abala affecting the aid corridor. It is still in control of other wards of Afar and the Amhara region. The Afar Regional Communications Office did not respond to a request for comment. It has not yet been possible to verify if Tigrayan forces are still present in Afar. Johannes Abraham, a spokesperson for the TPLF, reiterated the claim to VOA that TPLF forces have pulled out of Afar. The pullout was done per the um, previous plan to withdraw uh, in a step-by-step fashion. Contrary to the false narrations as usual uh, alluded by the Ethiopian region and its subsidiaries in Afar and elsewhere, as we speak, there are no Tigrayan forces remained in Afar. Even if humanitarian delivery shouldn't be conditioned, as you know it, presence of our forces in Afar is no more excuse for the region to block delivery of humanitarian aid. William Davison is an analyst for the Brussels-based International Crisis Group. He notes that the Ethiopian federal government had indicated the TPLF's pullout from afar might result in more aid reaching Tigray. Um, Throughout the federal government's communication um, following its humanitarian truce announcement, it's made reference to the uh, Tigray forces' presence in Amhara and Afar regions are almost suggesting that um, it's almost a condition for the uh, increased delivery of aid um, for Tigray forces to vacate those areas. Um, It seems that the conditions inside Tigray are absolutely desperate. Um, And now we will see um, whether this actually leads to something approaching um, unrestricted humanitarian access. Ethiopian analyst Kiram Tadesi 
points out, however, that even if the Ethiopian federal government gives the go-ahead for aid to enter Tigray, forces from the Afar and Amhara regions may still block them, as has happened in the past. The humanitarian need in Afar and Amhara is also at a crisis point, says Karam. We should not be uh, underestimating the potential uh, challenge that could come from the Afar regional forces. Uh, because like in Tigray, many people in uh, Amara and Afar regions are also in need of food aid and there should be a certain way to deal with this uh, deadlock regardless of the urgent need to respond to the situation in Tigray where uh, access is a critical issue. Combined, Tigray, Afar and Amhara have 9.4 million people who need humanitarian assistance, according to the UN, which also says the humanitarian situation in Tigray in particular is so desperate, people have been eating roots and flowers and plants instead of a normal steady meal. The deadlock continues. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Hike, Ethiopia. Press Freedom Group Reporters Without Borders has put the websites of two major French broadcasters back online in Mali. This after the country's military government pulled the broadcasters of the air in March and officially banned them from the Malian airwaves this week. Anna Risenberg reports from Bamako. Reporters Without Borders put the France 24 and Radio France International websites back online in Mali Thursday, creating mirrors of the sites that can be accessed in Mali and are updated in real time. Using a virtual private network had previously been the only way to access those websites in Mali, since the military government blocked them and took their corresponding TV and radio stations off the air on March 17th. Arnold Froger, head of the RSF Africa desk, says that the action is part of the organization's work toward media freedom. He says RSF has been getting banned media websites back online since 2015, so far having put 47 websites back online in 24 countries, most recently in Russia. It's basically restoring your right to access to uh, information that has been uh, wrongfully denied uh, by this uh, censorship. On Wednesday, France Media Monde, the parent company of RFI and France 24, said it was notified of the decision of Mali's High Communication Authority to definitively ban the two stations in the country. The High Communication Authority is the communication regulatory body in Mali, whose website says its primary mission is to protect freedom of information and communication and freedom of the press. RFI and France 24 were taken off the air in March after RFI reported on alleged human rights abuses by Mali's army around the town of Diabali. Mali's government said the report contained false allegations aimed at destabilizing the government. In late March, after the French broadcast ban, Human Rights Watch and several other media outlets reported on a Mali army operation in the town of Mora, in which witnesses said 300 civilians were killed. Tensions have been running high between the Malian and French governments. This month, France accused Russian mercenaries of staging a mass grave in Gosi, Mali, in order to blame it on French forces who had recently handed over a military base in Gosi to the Malian army. Mali's government then accused France of spying, but did not mention or refute the claim that Russian mercenaries are working with the Malian army. Annie Reisenberg for VOA News, Bamako, Mali. Muslim worshippers in Turkey's southeastern city of the Yabakil said they struggled to purchase essential groceries for Ramadan celebrations because of the country's high inflation rate. VOA's Sexican Fagin has details of this report narrated by Rikar Hussein. Observant Muslims around the world spend extra money during Islam's holy month of Ramadan to fill dinner tables with plenty of delicious delicacies so they can enjoy breaking their fast with family and friends. But in Turkey, 
Soaring inflation has made buying even a basic meal a struggle for many in the Kurdish city of Diyarbakir. In April, the Turkish Statistical Institute reported that inflation had reached a new 20-year high of 61%. The report noted that consumer prices increased by more than 5% in March alone. The growing demand for food during Ramadan has worsened inflation. Even vendors who do not sell food are struggling. The Turkish economy has been on a downward spiral since 2018, while President Recep Erdogan continues to reassure the Turkish people the opposition blames him for his economic policies. For Khadijan Farkan in Diyarbakir, Turkey, Rakar Hussein, VOA News. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 1935 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. Fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 16:30 and 18:30 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports. Or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on the Voice of America. edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com until next time i am chinero from washington wishing you a great day Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The recently released annual threat assessment by the U.S. intelligence community predicts that Iran will remain a regional menace with broader malign influence activities. The report notes that U.S. personnel, partners, and interests are at risk from the Iranian regime's support for terrorist proxies and the rogue Syrian regime, as well as from Iran's growing willingness to engage in aggressive cyber attacks. In addition, Iran continues to work on its ballistic missile program and has resumed certain nuclear activities beyond the limits set by the Iran nuclear deal. The United States withdrew from the deal, known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, in 2018 under the previous administration. For the past year, the United States has been in indirect negotiations with Iran over a mutual return to full implementation of the JCPOA. As State Department spokesperson Ned Price said, every challenge that we face and would face from Iran, whether that is its support for proxies, its support for terrorist groups, its ballistic missile program, would be all the more difficult to confront if Iran were in the possession of a nuclear weapon. The first thing we want to do is put Iran's nuclear program back in a box to take that challenge off the table.
There has been significant progress in the nuclear negotiations, but they have paused in recent weeks over a number of unresolved issues. At a press conference, spokesperson Price said the United States is prepared for a return to full JCPOA implementation. We are also prepared for broader diplomatic efforts to resolve issues outside of the JCPOA, he declared. If the Iranians do not want to use these talks to resolve other bilateral issues, then we are confident we can very quickly reach an understanding on the JCPOA and begin to re-implement the deal itself. It is Iran that needs to make this decision. Spokesperson Price emphasized that the United States is equally prepared for scenarios in which there is a mutual return to compliance with the JCPOA and scenarios in which there is not a mutual return. We would, he said, greatly prefer the former, to have the JCPOA and the verifiable permanent limits that it would again impose on Iran's nuclear program. Whether we are able to get there or not, that is a question for Iran. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 